we are constantly reminded that we live in a polluted world. How long does it take your bathroom to go from sparkling clean to disgustingly filthy? We have record timings at our place. Smelly diapers need to be changed. Dishes washed and carpets vacuumed and floors scrubbed and windows cleaned and bodies bathed. Furnace filters need to be replaced and engine oil changed and decks power washed. And then we're reminded by the media of our dirty environment. We're breathing in air that is polluted all the time. We are drinking water that is filled with toxins. And our food sources are compromised as well. And there's all kinds of story, uh, scary stories and reports that are put together and how terrible that is. We think of our food source, the very things we must inhale and ingest as we think of the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat, all that we must inhale and ingest in order to live is slowly killing us. And layered on top of all this messiness is a world of unseen germs and infections and poisons and disease. We inhabit an unclean world. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have come to know that the greatest uncleanness of all is the filth of our sin. The external uncleanness of our physical environment simply reflects the moral uncleanness that corrupts each of us from within. There is dirt on the outside and there is plenty of dirt on the inside. The unbelieving world around us responds, who cares? I like the darkness, though they might not articulate it that way. They like the moral darkness. The Scriptures teach us that. Who cares? The born-again follower of Jesus has come to see the disgusting nature of sin. We realize moral corruption restricts fellowship with our perfectly pure and holy God. So communion with a holy God and consecration to Him hinge on a keen awareness of the pollution of sin. We can't truly know our holy God until we understand how holy He is in relationship with us. And we see this connection most clearly in the Gospel of which we have been singing and the Scriptures that we have read and the implications that we find in that Word in the New Testament. But we are also steered to this orientation by the law of God revealed to Israel. We've been talking throughout this series a few times about the drama of this book and understanding it as a drama trying to get into it, something like a movie. It's set in a different time. It has nothing to do with us directly by way of instruction and teaching today and the way that we live out our life. But it is a story that is pointing us a certain way. We've got to really tap that today as we enter into the text before us here. Because this has, in one sense, as we come to Leviticus chapter 11 today, utterly nothing to do with us. It will not change the way that we live in practical application. And yet, in the drama of it, in the story of it, 
it is pointing us a certain way and it is teaching us that which we absolutely must know. It dramatizes truth in a way that confirms how we must see life and where we must find hope. So as we come to chapters 11 and 12 today, the drama serves the next installment in answering that question. How can impure people enter into the presence of a perfectly pure and holy God? How can this be? The book has begun with the atoning substitutionary sacrifice. This very concept we must grasp and will ever be in play, though in different respects, looking indifferently, the atoning substitutionary sacrifice, Leviticus 1-7, through is the answer. And then as we come to chapters 8-10, through a functional priesthood. Noting the end of chapter 9 of Leviticus, we find the high note of freshly consecrated priesthood. It is this, verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces, worshiping, perhaps fear combined as well. God speaks to the appropriateness to the completion of the consecration of these priests to the, and the appropriateness of this sacrifice and this system. Fire falls and consumes the remaining burning pieces to say, God saying, I approve. Sinful people entering into the presence of a holy God. But then we noted in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, something very dramatically shifts in the text. As the account is here for us in chapter 10, we read verse 1, that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So fire comes out at the end of chapter 9 in approval, and fire falls out of the presence of God, from the presence of God, and consumes Nadab and Abihu, these priests who have chosen to approach God on their own terms in some way. We talked about that last week. We won't go back into that today. But as the priesthood gets back on the track, as they get their feet back under them and begin to conform again to God's plan, chapter 10 and verse 10 is a crucial verse for us. Notice this in the text. The Lord has spoken to Aaron and speaking directly to him says, verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. How does a sinner approach God? How does the priesthood approach God? And in a sense now the question is, what about everybody else? You as priests, I have chosen you, God says, and I want you to teach and instruct God's people how to offer appropriate sacrifices, how to approach me. And one of the things that you will be teaching them is about the holy and the common 
the clean and the unclean. So on the graphic before us here, God is holy. And holy meaning pure and righteous, of course, but also just distinctive, different from His world. And there are priests who enter into the consecrated holiness of God. They are dedicated to Him. They're no longer common people. They're not part of the profane world, nothing evil about it as such, but they are now consecrated to God in His holiness. And even if you kind of picture the tent of meeting there at the center of the people, there's this holy bubble placed over it. How do sinners approach God there? There's the holiness of God. Outside of that circle of His holiness is the realm of the common or profane. Common is not sinful necessarily, it's just not consecrated uniquely to God. So the farmer that would be out in his field would be common, would be profane, he'd be part of that world as far as employment is concerned. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in fact in this place Sunday, I missed it, but that's those profane days, those are common days. The Sabbath is the holy day, the consecrated, set aside day, so people and time and objects can be set aside out of the common and placed into the holy realm. But in that common realm, there are two other circles, sub-circles, the clean and there is the unclean. Now, there can be passage between these realms. There can be passage from what is clean to becoming corrupted and what is not clean. And this again, this can even just be objects and often is. That which is unclean can be purified in some way and be made clean. And what is clean can be consecrated and can become holy. And what is holy can become common or even unclean through corruption of some sort. Now, now this... That might be a bit confusing, that whole idea, but we got to kind of carry this with us. The holy and the common, and within the common, the clean and the unclean. For those that learn a little bit different way, this might be simpler. There is the realm of the holy or the common. There's just those two realms. But the clean might be part of the common realm, the profane realm, or part of the holy realm if it's so consecrated. But the unclean is never part of the holy realm. It must first become clean. So we draw the circles this way. The common may be unclean, or the common may be clean, and the clean may become holy. But never the unclean become holy. So these are concepts we don't readily identify with in one sense, although we are participating in the greater fulfillment to which they have all pointed. The clean fits the common person to approach a holy God. And the holy realm is that realm of utter devotion to the Lord. So as God continues to dramatize how sinners can approach His presence, He formulates certain ritual regulations for His people that will ever remind them of their uncleanness in the sight of a perfectly holy God and of the need to deal with their uncleanness. So again, look, we're thinking drama here. We're not thinking about this as directly applicable to me. Believe me, it'll take us a couple minutes here and we'll see that. 
But we're saying there's a picture that God is displaying to His people, and it's a picture that they're going to be coming to terms with all the time, every day of their lives. That we live in a corrupt world. Not only physically dirty, but in a world that is conceptually dirty and morally dirty. And in some sense, even what is not specifically evil and specifically sinful is yet corrupted by life in this morally broken and filthy world. This God will teach His people over and over again. And the cleanliness, the pristine beauty and holiness is God who is to be approached by sinners. So we'll look through this fairly rapidly, but as as God prepares us for this, we must recognize that in these ritual laws, there is a picture of what's going on in the narrative of the book of Leviticus. We're very familiar with that narrative on the first end. That's Nadab and Abihu here in chapter 10, verse 1. They are killed by fire that comes out from the Lord, consumed, verse 2, and they die because of their unfaithfulness in approaching a holy God. Is it a big deal that you're prepared to come into His presence? Nadab and Abihu answer that question. It's absolutely essential that you come properly. But as we come to chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, and what is the height of the book of Leviticus, there again Nadab and Abihu are referenced, and their death is referenced. So between these two bookends, in reference to Nadab and Abihu, we have these ritual laws. They're not nearly as interesting to us because we aren't following them. But I really don't think they were all that interesting to the Israelites either. It wasn't a lot of fun to constantly be thinking about what is clean food and unclean food. What must I do to seek ritual purification? But God was demonstrating to them, you're never going to be able to forget this. There's a clean condition and an unclean condition. And so we come to chapter 11 with this ritual law beginning here in a unique way as we deal with this very matter of clean and unclean, holy and common. Verse 1 of chapter 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. For our non-agrarian setting here, I will help us out here. There's a cloven hoof, a split hoof. Whatever has that can be eaten, but not that which is a uh, that doesn't have this parted hoof. You're to know the difference between the two, and also there is to be two things then, this type of sort of hoof, along with chewing the cud. Now, chewing the cud is, um, we use that word a certain way in our world, as cows kind of take down grass really fast, put it in a stomach for storage. I mean, it's really no more than a picnic basket, it's just a little slimy. But they put it in storage there, and then they bring it back up and chew it real finely. And I grew up in a, across from a college 
where they had a cow with a window in its stomach. And I'm going to tell you, if that wasn't exciting. I mean, the cow wasn't dead. It was alive. You could see the stuff down there inside. But they bring it up out of that stomach into their mouth and they chew it up more finely. What they also are then are vegetarian, these animals. That just put off supper or lunch for everybody, didn't it, for a little bit? <laughs> not going to get too hungry too fast now, but... Um, they, they're, there's, there's all, they're not, they're vegetarian type of animals. They chew the cud, and it's not, the Hebrew doesn't mean exactly what we mean by that, but there's a, a type, they're non-carnivorous vegetarian animals with a certain type of foot, if I could use that word. So they're not scavengers preying on dead animals. They're not predators eating meat, but they are these other type of animals. For instance, a lamb, a goat, and a deer. The preliminary point here is that God places the Israelites on a restricted diet. He restricts that here by defining what they can eat. At verse 4, he says, on the other hand, nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, You shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it has that rounded foot, so to speak, it's unclean to you. Verse 5, the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, it's not carnivorous, it's a vegetarian animal, it chews the cud but it does not part the hoof, uh, it's unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of the flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So there's two ways of contracting uncleanness. Eating the wrong meat, or touching the carcass of the wrong type of animal. We move then into further restrictions with water creatures in verse 9, with birds in verse 13, and with winged insects in verse 20 that are going to pile up on this. You can eat these things. You can't eat these things. This this is a clean animal that can be eaten. This is an unclean animal that cannot be eaten. Let's bridge the gap just momentarily before we go through the rest of the dietary restrictions and we'll do that fairly quickly but in the ancient context we need to understand getting food was kind of a daily process for many people it, it, it there there was a lot less excess when it came to food and so finding food and eating a meal was never to be taken for granted and to be able to find an animal that could be eaten that the nations around were eating would be very natural to think that's that's a good thing and that's what I need to do to stay alive. But what God is saying to those to his people with their interest in food, he is saying to them what the flesh craves is not always legitimate. We live in a culture that says whatever the flesh craves is legitimate to fulfill as long as you don't violate someone else's rights. As long as they're born, at least. 
But holiness, and this is where the drama helps us, as we pursue the holiness of God, we come to recognize that some legitimate desires must be set aside. There's cravings that I have. There's things that I want. There's things that will help my flesh that are off limits. They render us, in a sense, unclean. So as we battle in this world, there may be, for instance, we'll just leave it on the highway, but a picture that we see on an advertisement that says, eat it, drink me in, in lust and in passion. And God's call of holiness says, no. I have a desire there to enjoy and to feed a desire of the flesh But I say no, because God is holy. There's a teaching way there. There's a way of thinking there that leads me to say no. There is a desire that I have, a very natural desire to marry. And I've not been able to find someone who knows Christ as Savior. I've not been able to find a mate that, and I'd like to find that mate. And so I'm going to do the best that I can do, and I'm going to marry an unbeliever. Better to be married to an unbeliever than not to be married at all is what the desire says within us. But God's people in the pursuit of holiness say, the person that I marry must be distinctive unto God and I have to say no to that desire. And some have said that within the context of our church in very difficult ways. But that's what God's people do. They see the holiness of God as a higher priority than just fulfilling the desire's of the flesh. And it might even just be food and a gluttonous desire to fulfill whatever urges we have with food. And whatever it is, the desires of the flesh call us to fulfill them. And we live in a culture that says, if you have that desire, go for it. But God is saying to people where food isn't all that terribly plentiful by our standards, He's saying to these people, You won't eat this because you're mine. Because you're mine and because I'm holy, this is off limits. And it's good. Titus 2 says to us as those who are on this side of the cross, the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Training us to renounce ungodliness. There are desires and there are passions that we have that we say, I'm not going there because of the holiness of God. He is holy and I am to approach Him in cleanness Therefore, he says to them in this drama, in what makes no sense to us on the face, you can't eat these animals. Here it is when it comes to the waters, where we also find an abundance of food. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat, but anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it's detestable to you. It's profane. It's, it's, it's unclean in an unclean way. 
You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. Fish are clean. Eels, for instance, unclean. You will not eat that, or you will be unclean. Birds, verse 13, and you shall detest among the birds, they, and these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. All of those unclean. Do not eat them. Now the identity of these birds is debated. So if you're looking at another version, you probably find a little bit different translation. But again, the carnivores that feed on the flesh of dead animals or that hunt animals for food are unclean. Israelites were to know that these birds were not to be included in their diet. They were to be able to identify them and they were to avoid them. To winged insects we go in verse 20. All the winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all four, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind, but all the other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you and pretty much detestable to us. Even the clean ones. Yeah, what on earth are we eating insects for? But I'm just going to take their word for it, but locusts were a luxury. They were a wonderful diet and a luxury. The muscular part of the locust was harvested and I don't know what they did with it, but... Um, I suppose it tasted like chicken, but uh, it, that's not hitting us at all. But they do have access there, and they did use that access, and they claim it was really tasty. We'll leave it with that. But we move at verse 24 to how uh, uncleanness can be contracted from carcasses. So you won't eat these animals, but it's not stated here, but the assumption is is proper, the conclusion is proper, you can touch them. But you can't touch them if they're dead. Verse 24. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cut is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, and all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. In the larger legislation, this is minor. Minor uncleanness, just to the end of the day, easily remedied with a washing. Short contamination period, contrast to other situations where there was much greater detail. But they had to watch what they were doing. They had to be aware of when they were clean. And you say, is it a big deal? 
They touch the carcass of the wrong thing and they approach God at the tent of meeting. They are standing in the place of Nadab and Abihu. They've come to the holy God in uncleanness. It was a big deal. They had to watch out and they needed priests. They needed priests to tell them, don't come in here. Do not approach. Don't bring that animal for sacrifice. You're not ready. You're unclean. 29, and these are unclean to you among the swarming things. Now, swarming means darting, moving back and forth unpredictably. It can be used of fish that dart in the sea, but here, uh, perhaps particularly of those things that move around on the ground. Kind of freak you out because you don't know where they're going. They're all they're quick and moving and darting and jumping. Of these things you will not eat that swarm on the ground. The mole, verse 29, the rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. We're doing house cleaning here. We're, we're, there's going to be these things showing up in their houses and they've got to know how to deal with it. Verse 33, and if any of them falls into an earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean and all Drink that could be drunk from every, ve- every such vessel shall be unclean. So a mouse gets into some grain that's in a pot and dies, it's unclean. And everything on which any of the part of the carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. That's this, this clay, uh, clay baking uh, Items They are unclean and shall remain unclean to you. Verse 36, nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. So a rat falls into the water source. We have this little uh, tub, this mikvah outside where they would wash ceremonially and maybe draw water, but a, a, a rat fell in there and died. The water's clean. You can use it for cleansing, but as you fish it out, you're now unclean. Verse 37, if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed of grain that is to be sown, it's clean. What's the point? It gets into the seed source. You can go ahead and sow it. But if water is put on the seed, which apparently means if you're preparing to eat the seed, it's, it's soaking up water and being turned into some sort of mash, and any part of the carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. So even if it's a clean animal that dies of its own accord, whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing, every darting thing that darts on the ground is detestable to you. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. Why? 
For I, the Lord, your God, for I am the Lord, your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You're not normal people. I'm a holy God who rescued you out of Egypt. So He brings them back to their redemption and to the shedding of the blood of the Lamb that sprung them out of slavery in Egypt, that gave them His redemptive grace. And having been delivered from Egypt, He bought them, He purchased them, He loved them. They are holy unto Him. And so you're going to eat differently. And every single day of your life, you're going the things that you're touching and dealing with the animal world, you're going to be thinking in terms of clean and unclean. And can I approach God or must I wait and seek purification? This is their life. This is how it's put together. They can't ever think any other way unless they simply wholly disregard God. We, we, we tend, in, in fact, we've done a fair amount of it recently, kind of laughing at what on earth are we going to do now with the gecko in this passage? And they're dealing with all this food and all this stuff. But for God, as He's speaking to Israel, all joking aside on our side of the equation, this is serious. I am a holy God, and you must approach me in cleanness. So don't eat these things. If you touch these carcasses, you need to be cleansed. It's all connected to His deliverance in, from Egypt. It's all connected to His election of this nation. Since I am the Lord, since I am holy, since I saved you out of Egypt, you are to be holy people. What is holiness again? It is distinctiveness. It is being separated from the world and identified uniquely with the divine realm. In this case, with the true and living God. He prizes the loyalty of His people. He is a holy God and He wants us to be a holy people. And again, I I can't stress enough what a pervasive object lesson this would have been. The holiness of God was the main consideration even in Israel's diet. What's the main consideration in your diet? Health, taste, convenience. For them, the holiness of God was the main consideration. Does God permit me to eat this? Will this make me unclean? Even as they ate their food, they were thinking sin and holiness, God and man. The way they approached food reminded them and taught them from childhood that the pollution of sin is everywhere. There was nothing evil about an unclean animal. There was nothing evil about picking up a dead mouse by the tail and throwing it outside your home. It was not evil, but the dramatic instruction of the law taught Israel every day that she must approach God on His terms and that there is a major hurdle there. Contracting uncleanness separated an Israelite from proximity to God's presence at the tent of meeting. I I don't think then, in the grand scheme of things, this is all about dietary restrictions. I don't think in the grand scheme of things, this is even just about hygiene. Many would argue that way. God knew better than everybody around them what they should eat and what they should not eat. Oh, that's true. 
But I don't think for thousands of years God's people had been dying because they didn't know what not to eat. In fact, there seems to be indications that they had some of these things figured out long ago through the patriarchs. So there is a dietary reason for not eating some of these things. I don't know anybody tempted to eat some of these things. You'd think it was just a kindness that somebody told them not to do that. But that's not the main point. The main point is the holiness of God. And the Israelites got this so well that we see Acts 10. And God brings that sheet full of unclean animals in the vision down to Peter and Peter says, not on my life do I eat one of those. This is to become unclean and that means I cannot fellowship with God in His presence and I don't want anything to do with that. I never have. I'm not eating that stuff. But Jesus had been preparing Peter and perhaps some of the ideas clicked quite quickly because of Christ's earlier preparations. He said in Matthew 15 in teaching in regard to the Pharisees, you do not see that, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Do you think this is all about food? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It was never about the food. It was always about the heart. For Israel to be taught in dramatic way, we are sinful people. And sin comes out of us and it permeates everything. They had to think this way. In Mark 7... Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? His disciples, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, apparently, writes Mark, thus he declared all foods clean. That doesn't mean, yippee, we can start eating lizards. What does that mean? All foods are clean. This is no longer how he's going to talk to us about what he was always talking about. And that's a clean heart. And that's what happens in Acts 10. As Peter has to get it that these foods are now considered clean, they are no longer a hindrance to entering into the presence of God. But how did he apply it? Rightly so. It wasn't about the food. In his case, it was about the Gentiles. If I can eat these foods, then I can enter into the presence of a Gentile and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was beginning to dawn on him that the cross of Jesus Christ changed everything. Not changed it in a new plan, a new way that had nothing to do with the old way, but in a, plan, in a way that fulfilled it. It was never just about the food. It was about only a clean heart can approach God and walk in His presence with faithfulness. And so the summation, verse 46, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten.
for a few moments, we delve into a second realm of purification. Journey with me just for a bit. We'll plow quickly. And that is purification of a woman after childbirth. So these foods, clean and unclean by eating or by touching a carcass. Now we go into childbirth. Food sustains life. Childbirth perpetuates life. In the very things of life, the things that keep you alive as people, I am holy and you are to be holy. And so there is purification necessary for bringing a child into the world. First of all, a mother's ritual uncleanness after delivering a baby boy is dealt with. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. More legislation on that to come. Bodily fluids were a significant part of the teaching lesson. Verse 3, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purification. That is, blood continues to flow in some level. Fluids are, continually, are, are continue to be lost. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. She is unclean and unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. Remember, this is just the drama. This is just the story, just the picture. It's not to all that it's pointing to, but it's sending a message. As food sustains life and childhood then perpetuates life, mere humanness naturally distances us from the holy presence of God. Wow, is that offensive. You see, again, we see here how the law steers us to think a certain way. It won't let us go any other way. And how many people I know I've offended through the years as I talk to them and say, it's not simply breaking the law of God actively and willingly that separates you from the law from God. It's the fact that you were born. Your humanness itself separates you from God. That is clearly seen in this text and in far fuller sense as the Bible develops. It's highly offensive in our world. I mean, if I do something and shake my fist in God's face and I choose to break His law, okay, I can see that. But just to be human makes me sinful? There's a wickedness, a dirtiness, a sinfulness that attaches to our very humanity. We are sinners by nature. The boy is to be circumcised, a sign of the covenant. Ancient false religions also practice circumcision. What seems to be very unique, and maybe more archaeological research will help on this, I don't know, but at preliminary, we haven't been able to find another culture that practiced it on infants. What you do find, it's not very edifying reading, but what you do find is it's practiced on young men as they come into manhood in various cultures and among various nations and their religious practices, and it was almost... It was often very nasty. These boys were abused. 
There were sexual rights that were included with it. It was, it was horrible. But God, in His mercy to His people, with this very practice, which may have indeed had a hygienic point to it, but what He does is gives it to infants so as to certainly avoid the abuses that were so common in that world. But we wonder about all this, asking why. Why does she need to be purified? The Bible teaches that marital sex is good and that childbirth is a divine blessing. Barrenness in the Old Testament is not celebrated as ritual purity. What, what a wonderful thing. You can't have children. You are ritually pure. No, it sees it as a source of great heartache and loss. So I think the key to remember here is why, why would God say, have children, fill the earth. It's a blessing. Children are heritage from me, but it, they render you unclean. The key, I think, is to remember that uncleanness is not necessarily sinfulness. It can be simply ritual defilement as it is here. That is, it just draws attention to our humanity. Why does childbirth render a mother unclean and thus unable to worship in the presence of God at the tent of meeting? There may be a pragmatic reason. By being unclean and not being pressed to the temple, she's given time to rest. But beyond any practical reason, there may have been in God's mind, and that's merely conjectural, why is she unclean? Not because she's given birth. That's actually not what the text says, but it's her bloody discharge after birth that renders her unclean. The discharge reflects death, the loss of blood, the loss of life. And so in a visual picture, it separates her from the pristine presence and holiness of God. Not because she has done anything wrong. She's just received the blessing of God. But it's a reminder of her humanity. It's a reminder of sin by nature to all who are born. Blood defiles. And is it not irony in a beautiful sense that blood atones? It defiles in the wrong place. It atones in the right place. And she's reminded of all of this. A mother's ritual uncleanness after delivering a baby girl is covered in verse 5, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Why double the time? It's not because the Israelites sought, believed in the inferiority of women, but perhaps owing to the fact that she was giving birth to a girl who would participate in this whole process or maybe even more um, possibly that this, her double time, stands in for circumcision with the boy. So the boy, there's the purification and the circumcision. For the girl, there's just double purification time, which is um, a extreme mercy. There are religions today that circumcise women. It's destructive 
mutilation. It is oppression. It is vile. Thankfully, God participates in none of that. It simply doubles the time of purification. A mother's atonement after giving birth then is described in verse 6. And when the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering and a pigeon and a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Not because she's broken God's law and sinned in having a child, but because she's given birth to a sinner She herself is a sinner. This is a reminder to it. In the ritual purification process, like the food rites, we're reminded of the filthiness, the moral filth of this world. It's not a punishment. She's done nothing wrong. In fact, as we know, Jesus' mother, Luke 2, performs this very thing and as a poor woman comes with the smallest of offerings to fulfill the law with respect to Messiah. Now again, these food laws were a major issue in the New Testament church. They defined, as I've described, Peter's dilemma. And as we've read that passage of Scripture today, I've never eaten unclean meat. But what it is all meant to do is to help us understand the holiness of God, the approach to the holiness of God. And in this case, God even uses it to help His people see the new relationship of Jew and Gentile within the body of Christ. Holiness is a way of life. It is a life of moral purity to which Christ calls us. And this is a life that in Christ no longer involves food. It no longer involves childhood rituals. Now it is a life of moral purity. Now it connects to what Jesus, what we saw quoted earlier, it connects to what's in the heart, what's coming out of the heart, who we are within. And if you have not come to a place of finding cleanness in the presence of the Holy God, if there's a sense that you look at your life and you look at its moral standing and you say, I am filthy, there's very good news here. The fact that you're seeing that is wonderful news. This is the kind of idea that God is not allowing His people to see anything else. They're always coming to recognize the depth of their sin. If you see the depth of your sin, that's a mercy from God. So many would accuse us even here today of just beating people down and speaking negatively. The human soul is so much more capable. It's so much more pure than what you're saying. God says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's a mercy that we see that. But if you see that sin, you see that filth, you say inside, I'm a dirty person. The answer to it is found 
in this one who came to fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. Who stood in fulfilling this system of sacrifice. He dying in the place of the sinner. Taking your place to pay that penalty. Dying, the, paying the cost of sin for sinners. He provides atonement. That means that the death that you know you deserve, the judgment of God that you know you deserve, Christ paid it. He stood in your place. He died as a substitute and shed His blood for the cleansing of your soul. As you come to understand that truth and embrace that truth, this is God's goodness to you. So you may come here today saying, I feel so filthy, so dirty, so wicked. You're ready for a bath. The bath is not your performance and your good works. The bath is the washing, cleansing, purification that comes by Jesus Christ paying the penalty of your sin. Yours. Own it. Embrace it. Don't run from it. Don't try to set yourself up to be pleasing to God. Christ is pleasing to the Father. That's all. That's all you need. Trust Him and His death and resurrection as your purification. To those of us who know Christ, there's a constant everyday reminder for Israel. We are free from that reminder in Christ, free from this ritual system, but we are the happiest people on the planet as we are called to a life that is demonstrably devoted to God, that seeks a way of holiness, separated from the world, devoted uniquely to Him. That is a high calling to be separated as a holy people pursuing a holy God. We're reminded daily of our moral filth. Streams of filth flow from our mouths, cloud our spirits, and corrupt our thoughts. But there is joy here, not despair. Despair if we rest in ourselves, but there is joy here if we rest in Christ. And know that He has paid the penalty. By God's grace, we're growing in moral purity as the indwelling Spirit of Jesus purifies our souls and we eat freely and drink freely of the pure milk of God's Word. Learning to think differently. Learning to live differently. It's salvation, Egypt, sanctification, Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. For us, it is judgment through the law and salvation in the ark of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So we can come from here knowing we are not holy, but rejoicing in this unique calling. Be holy, says the Lord. Be holy, because I am holy. Let's pray. And we've been praying, Lord, through this service. We've been praying seeking Your will and seeking Your grace and utterly needing it. Please guide as we gather in groups today to discuss this message and its application to our lives. Please guide those who may not be part of that particular process but would go home today and maybe over dinner would talk about the holiness of God. As we eat and drink, may we do so to Your glory. And as we eat and drink and as we live our lives, may we do so in distinctive purity. You've called us to this. It is our joy and our privilege. We fall so very far short. 
we find no hope in our own strength. But as you would fill us and strengthen us, may this church be growing in holiness and faithfulness to you. And we will thank you for what you're pleased to accomplish in and through us. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.